Good afternoon. We are going to continue this afternoon looking at the, the subject that has been the, the primary focus of our last several lessons. Um, we are so very thankful for those of you that are, that are visiting with us, and I would like to repeat what I said this morning in that uh, these lessons that I've been presenting have been lessons focused on apologetics, focused on uh, defending our faith and, and ex- describing to others the, the reasons and the evidence for why we believe what we believe. Having said that, the sermon this morning, the summer this afternoon, both take me out of my comfort zone. Uh, I, I am far more uh, willing and ready to dig into Scripture and to, to look at uh, passages in depth, but what we'll be doing again as we did this morning is turning to some outside sources and considering things that we can learn from them, recognizing that sometimes that's the, that's the starting point that we have to begin with people who are skeptical, people who are unsure about what to make of this, the Bible. <clears throat> I want to begin by painting the picture for us of what we're doing. Somebody maybe. Maybe somebody comes to you and they say, you know, you believe that, that this Jesus was, was the Christ, but how do you really know that He was a real person? How do you really know that the things that are said about Him in your Bible, how do you know that they are true? And as we've noted before, the best place for us, or the first place in our minds that we think of is usually to, we're going to flip through the Scriptures to find our proof text. Find that, why do I believe God is? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. Why do I believe Jesus was the Son of God? Because John chapter 1 says, in the beginning, the Word. That doesn't always work to help critics and skeptics who really don't care very much about what John is telling us at the beginning of his Gospel. To be clear, what we are doing whenever we turn to the Bible is we are are addressing historical and accurate documents. We talked about that just a little bit this morning. And so what we need to do is we need to remove ourselves from our 21st century view of the Bible. You have to ask our, our children, what is the Bible? And Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But what is that? What's the Bible? They're maybe going to hold up the little books that we've given them that, that, contain, that contain Scriptures and say, this is the Bible. But is that our, our mentality? Is our mentality that this is just, it, it's a book? It's actually far more than that. It is a collection of individual historical documents. Documents that had different purposes. Not all were intended just to record what happened at an event. There are other purposes for them. There there are purposes for the prophecies. There are purposes for the, the, the poetry, the Psalms and the Proverbs. There's different purposes, but what they are, they are historical articles recorded by different authors at different times across different locations. The four Gospels, we talked a little bit this morning, there are four separate historical accounts compiled by eyewitnesses, recorded, disseminated throughout the world that provide real historical information about Jesus. Paul's writings, his letters, they are independent sources of information about Christ and about the early church, and they date back to within 25 years of the events. And yes, they are, con- they are compiled in what we call the Bible and what we view as Scripture. But that's not how they were written. They weren't written by authors that said, let's make a book. They were written written by authors as they were moved and as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They did not come together and write them in complicity. 
There was no counsel in which the eyewitnesses came together and said, all right, Mark, tell me what, tell me what you were told. Tell me what, what Peter had to say. Tell me, uh, what, what, what Matthew, what do you remember? And, and let, let's consider what John has to, to bring into this. That's not how the Gospels were recorded. They were not hashed out as they were remembered. And they stand as individual sources of historical purpose. But having said that, if we, uh, if we start addressing the gospel, sometimes the critics will cry out, you're addressing biased um, information. Sure, the gospels are going to talk a lot um, uh, and talk well about Jesus and, and explain Him the way they want to because that's the bias of the authors of the gospels. And so a lot of times, what someone who is opposed or hostile to the gospel will demand is something that is equally opposed or hostile to the goals of Christ. They will say, if I am going to find good credibility, I need an article that doesn't, that doesn't have any bias. I need an article that, that isn't written by someone. I need information that isn't provided by someone that, that loved Christ and wanted to follow Him. And so what they're really saying is, I want something that's equally hostile to the cause of Christ. I want to know what they have to say. What's interesting is that is not the logic that we would ever use to describe our own character. You go for a job interview, you don't go and find the people that hated you the most to say, can you please come give a description of who I am to this guy because I want him to know the real me. That's not what we do. But, but you know, we, we don't have to be afraid of playing their game. And that's been the purpose of these goals, of these lessons, is to try to inform ourselves and to equip ourselves to realize we can have an answer. And we can give a defense, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, for the hope that is within us. And we can even give a defense to someone who says, I don't want the Bible. I want you to explain to me why I should believe in Jesus. You know, there's an answer to that. And we must not be afraid to play their game. Are there sources that are outside of the quote-unquote Christian sources? Will these sources help to confirm the life of Jesus? And if so, what do they say? And how do we interpret that information? That's where we began this morning with the, the, the historical authenticity of the cross. What do the sources outside of the Bible say about Jesus, and about the resurrection, and about the life of the apostles and disciples that believed that they had seen Him with their eyes? What do they say about the empty tomb? We looked at some of those things. And we're going to continue that look today because the very short answer to that first question is yes, there is absolutely sources. Outside of our Scripture, there are sources that confirm to us many things about what our Bible says. Now before we get into that, there's a few, th a few things we need to remember. Number one, because these are sources outside of the Bible, they are not going to sound like the Bible. They don't support Christ. Many times these are sources by people who did not attest to the sanity of His believers. And in many cases, they despise them and they describe them as abominations, as despicable. They were not friendly to the cause of Christ. In many cases, these people did not believe in miracles. They thought that miracles were not real, they were nonsense, and they would try to, to provide other conclusions to how wonderful things recorded in the Bible may have been done. But here's what's helpful about them. What they did was they recorded snippets of information about the life of Christ and about His followers that reflect the consistency of the gospel accounts and epistles, and they show the historical authenticity of these works. Another thing that we need to remember is that they're not going to be nearly as detailed. 
There is a reason that there is so much said about Christ in the Gospels and so very little said by, by some of these authors that we're going to look at. That was not their purpose. They didn't begin writing to record the life of Jesus. They began writing to record the life of their times, the history that was going on around them. And so they're not going to have a lot to say. Sometimes it's very little. Sometimes it's just in passing and quite short. But what we can do from those little observations that they make is gain valuable information in regard to the statements of the Bible and the reliability of this text just on a physical level. Just on a physical level saying this is what, the, this, is what this document says and this is what another historian also said as well. And so what I hope to do is consider some of these sources. And as we do so, think about them, reason through them, and try to decide how we can apply them and our methods to help other people see and, and to, to come to believe what we believe, that this is the inspired Word of God, describing the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus the Lord. And so let's begin with a few of these sources. The first one I want to look at is a man by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus, we referenced this morning, he was a Roman historian, uh, and he's regarded as one of the greatest Roman historians of his time. He wrote two very famous books uh, or, or works. One was called The Annals, the other one was called The Histories. And they record a time spanning the periods between the death of, of Augustus in 14 AD and to around the time of the end of Nero, uh, specifically the, the first Jewish and Roman war in 70 AD. And I want us to think a little bit, and we read part of this quote this morning, but a quote that, that Tacitus records describing life as he knew it in his day. And he's talking about what Nero has done in regards to this great fire that broke out. Rome has been set ablaze, and people want to know who, and many of them regard Nero as probably having done it, and Nero is trying to pass the blame off on Christians. And listen to what Tacitus records at this time. He says, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of her procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. He would go on to describe some of the terrible things that Nero came up with to torture these Christians, and even go on to describe that the people of that day, the, the popular thought was maybe that these Christians were an abomination, they did not hold that Rome is, is this great kingdom that, that everybody else thought and that the emperors were worthy of worship. They held that there was one God and He alone was worthy of worship and they were a pain in the side of a lot of people because of this. But you know, the terrible things that were being done to them, Tacitus goes on to record that it brought compassion upon them, that the people of Rome looked down upon them and saw that this was not necessarily the punishment befitting of criminals, but an, an effort to, to appease the appetite of a power-hungry Caesar. So, so he, he, he records things, and he doesn't really record them as, well, you know, we've we got to feel bad for the Christians. He, doesn't, he makes it very clear that he's not a fan of the Christians. 
But he also records things as they really are and paints the, the emperor in the same, with the same open eyes as he does anything else. And so let's learn some of the things that he notices here that he brings out. One of the first ones that's very obvious is the, the nomenclature of Christians given to the followers of Christ. This is um, one of the places outside of Scripture that we find this origin and, and don't be caught off guard by the, the name Christus. Again, this is just Latin for Christ. We find also in this, uh, in, in this document that he not only has his name as its origin, but offer that he suffered uh, the extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Uh, again, this is not concrete evidence from this one source, but sources that we'll look at uh, later are going to describe... Um, that this extreme penalty that he describes here is, is most likely going to be referring to uh, crucif the, the crucifixion. Other authors, other writers are going to call it, uh, call it that by name. Uh, he mentions Pontius Pilate as the one who is uh, overseeing all of this. Uh, and he also mentions something interesting in that for a moment, it seems like they'd squash this, this, this growth. They'd squash this belief at the death of its leader. But... It broke out, and it didn't break out just in Jerusalem, just in the area of Judea, but it spread throughout the world and, and even into to places like Rome. Now, the point of all this is that, well, why does this matter what this guy says? And it doesn't really matter anything in regards to proving this. That's not what we're trying to do. I believe that this is true without Tacitus' uh, documentation that he has provided. But what we're doing is showing other people who maybe are skeptical of this that what we're saying is not far-fetched. It hasn't just been drawn up. A lot of people have this mindset that religion is something that was just crafted and created to control the populace. The things that the Bible records, the things that the book of Acts records, are the same thing that Tacitus is describing here. The spread of the Gospel. Where it's origin from. All of these things are things that we can read about. Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, Luke chapter 23, John chapter 18 and 19 all describe the death that Jesus, that Jesus died in the exact same ways that Tacitus is describing here. The, the breakout of Christianity and, and the spread of, of this, this belief system also in the book of Acts matches up to what he's describing here. And so what we're finding then is a non-Christian source that is deemed reliable by, by many people in the world is confirming the very foundational parts that the Bible account records as history. Another guy that we might look to um, whenever we are talking with someone that says, well, give me, give me some examples outside of the Bible. Well, maybe we need to take them to somebody like Josephus. Josephus, a name that we're probably maybe a little bit more familiar with. We've heard this name used before. Um, he was a well-known Jewish historian. He was writing between the years of 37 and 97 A.D. And around 70 A.D., when Jerusalem is destroyed, he moves himself up to Rome. And when he gets there, he winds up finding himself employed by Vespasian, the emperor, as a court historian. Now, he writes uh, many works, but one notably is his works, The Antiquities. And in it is considered reliable accounts of current events of that first century. But something about Josephus is that a lot of the things that he wrote about Jesus and a lot of the things that he wrote about the Bible are heavily disputed by, by, by critics. They'll look at it and say, why would someone who was sympathetic to the Jews write so favorably about, about the Bible and write so favorably about Jesus? 
So obviously something is wrong here. Something has, has maybe been, has been changed in translation. This can't be true. But you, I want you to know that even though some of his things are disputed, he does have several facts, and we'll look at one of them in a minute. Some of the things he said are disputed, but he also reveals countless undisputable facts, such as his reference to the man James, who he describes as the brother of Jesus, who they called Christ. There's a couple things that we can learn from that, and many will be quick to say, but that doesn't prove anything about Jesus and His identity. That does not prove that Jesus was the Christ. Well, no, you're right, it doesn't. It doesn't prove anything. What it does prove is the existence of these men that made an impact on history. James, who we know from from Scriptures as a skeptical brother of Jesus Christ, Josephus says that's absolutely true. He did have a brother named James. He was his brother, and he also records that Jesus was known as or referred to as Christ in those early days. But one of the more interesting passages that he records that is heavily contested is one where he writes about his death. And he writes in it that Jesus appeared to his disciples alive again on the third day. That seems, that seems to be a really good point for us to bring up to people when they say, well, I'm not sure I believe what the Bible says. They say, well, hey, we've got Josephus, a historian, not inspired, of course, but a historian nonetheless that said he did raise from the dead and he, he was visiting his disciples after his death. Well, you may go to use that sometime. You may say, well, hey, that seems like a really good thing for me to bring up when somebody's questioning it. And their response is going to be, there's a lot of people that think that's mistranslated. There's a whole lot of people that think that's wrong. Well, I want you to be clear. What they think it actually says, and this is found in, in the works of Josephus, but it's in the Arabic translation. They think it actually says this. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become His disciples did not abandon His discipleship. They reported. Not that He did, but they reported that He had appeared to them three days after His crucifixion and that He was alive. And so skeptics will say, hey, you see the difference? He was reportedly seen by them. But Josephus never said that they actually saw Him, but just that they reported that they saw Him. And we don't need to be worried about that, that argument because we talked about that this morning. We're not claiming that they saw Jesus alive. We're claiming the fact that we can all agree on, that we can come to a common ground on, is that they believed that. These eyewitnesses believed they saw that so strongly that they took that to their death and they died for that belief. They died for this report. If this report was fabricated by them, why would they give their lives for it? So what are some things that we learn in this passage? We learn, again, just another emphasis that Pilate is the one that condemned Jesus to death. He's sentenced to, be de- to die by crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate. But we also learn about His disciples here. His disciples did not abandon His teaching. They didn't abandon His discipleship. The things that He told them, the things that He revealed to them, they held to those things. And they continued on. And not only did they, they hold to them, they spread them throughout the land. And again, as we've just noted, they reported, they believed that three days after His crucifixion that He had been seen by them alive. And this belief, this report, is what ultimately spread to become the foundation of the Gospel growing in this area. Another one that I think would be good for us to consider is one that's largely lost to history. A man by the name of Thallus. 
He is a first century historian, and we know that sometime, he was recording sometime around 52 AD. So, where does this put us? It puts us within 20 years again of the events that he's talking about. But the problem with him is that a lot of his work has been lost. He was recording about everything from from the the Trojan Wars to the Eastern Mediterranean area and the history of it. But when so much of his work was lost, how can we we say, well, here's another source that, that confirms some of the things that the Bible says? Well, yes, it was lost. But in the first couple of centuries, so many people looked at what he wrote and said, I remember when Thallus wrote this, and I remember when Thallus wrote that. And he said all of these things, one of which is this man, Julius Africanus. And Julius, in the year 221 AD, he's writing about the death of Jesus. He's writing about the events that happened. He's talking about that time when the earth was, sh- was shook, when, when the, the skies were dark and there was that period of darkness for time. And he's talking about some of these things in regards to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And he records this comment about Thallus. He says, The darkness Thallus in the third book of his history calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. Thallus, he was referencing... 52 A.D., just a short period of time after the death of Christ, he's referencing that there was this period of time in the first century, a time that coincides with Jesus' with death, that there was a strange occurrence. And we have to find an explanation for it. There was maybe something like an eclipse of the sun when there was darkness upon the earth. Now, scientifically, they've went back and said, we can track the position of the sun and the earth and, and there is no way in, in the eyes of science, not in my eyes, I don't know how somebody could do this, they claim there's no way this could be an eclipse of the sun. But this is what Thales thought. He said, I think it was an eclipse of the sun. Well, what do we do with that? What am I to learn with something like that that seems so heavily contested? What am I to learn? What I'm to learn is that within 20 years of this, within a short period of time from his death on the cross, the report of darkness existed and it was growing and unbelievers are trying to explain what happened they're trying to say that this maybe this explains this occurrence maybe this is the reason why this happens and when a skeptic is arguing for an for an alternative cause what they're verifying is that something happened something that i can't explain and maybe it was this or maybe it was that thallus is trying to give an alternative theory because he knows something did happen in these early days of the first century, revolving around the time of the death of Christ. One more that we'll look at is this man, Pliny the Younger. Pliny is actually kind of like Pontius Pilate. He's a governor. He's the governor of the land of Bithynia, and he's an author, and he wrote just tons of letters, and so many of his letters survived. The land that he's actually governor over is the land that we can read about in our, in our Bibles. Peter addresses 1 Peter to the saints that are in Bithynia. He, he recognizes the Christians there and writes some of a, a part of his greeting, including them. Paul in Acts chapter 16 and verse 7 is trying to get to Bithynia. Over and over again, that's where he's trying to go, and the Holy Spirit keeps directing him up and around because he's got other plans for this for, for, for that missionary trip. But Pliny wrote all of these letters, and in them he he so many have survived, they have, they have made them a very good source of credibility to things that were happening around him in that, in that later part or early part of the second century, later part of the first. 
And what's interesting is in one of these letters, he writes to Emperor Trajan, and he says, I've got a problem with the Christians in my land. What's interesting is the, the way that this information has been given to him, when you read the full letter, what he says to him is, somebody gave me a list of names of people that follow this Christus, and I don't know what to do with them. So what I have been doing with them is when I catch them, I ask them if they will, if they will curse this leader that they follow, and if they will worship the, the gods of Rome, if they will worship you, Emperor Trajan, and if they will do those things, I've just been letting them go because I don't know what else to do. If they don't do those things, I, I persecute them, and if I have to, I, I uh, execute them. And if they're Romans, I've been sending them to you. Trajan, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do with these guys? That's the, the basics of the letter. And in that letter, he records a conversation that he's had with some of these Christians. He says, They asserted that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by oath not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food. So, so Pliny is writing this, and he's saying, look, this is what's going on in my land. And he's asking, what do I do with it? And it's interesting, Trajan's response to him is, keep it up. Don't seek them out. If you find them, if they're caught, do exactly what you're doing. Give them a chance to repent of this terrible act. And, and if they won't, you can punish them severely. What do we learn from Pliny's letters? One thing we learn is the early Christians worshipped Jesus. They didn't just worship Jesus for... In any way, they worshipped Him as a deity. They recognized Him as the Son of God. And they came together on a fixed day. We know from Scripture it records that as the first day of the week. They came together on Sundays to do this, and they encouraged one another to live faithful lives. I found it interesting in that quote. He says, they didn't come together to bind themselves to commit a crime. They came themselves to stand against that. Basically to live faithful lives is what they're binding themselves to do. And they're pressing one another on to do these things. And they did all of that in the face of great persecution. Even though many of them are dying for this, the faith continues to grow. Now, very short lesson this afternoon. And we could do this all day. There are so many other sources. There's so many other sources that we could turn to to look at. But I hope that this is a, a smattering of, of, of sources we can take to maybe some of our critical friends and say, look, the historical accounts of the Bible, it's not just made up. It's not fairy tales. They're, they're, they are not opposed to what many sources outside also report. They are facts. And when those facts are viewed together... And when we agree upon them as the very fundamental claim of the Bible, what do we do with that? When we consider those facts and see that what, what, what we're looking at is a, a, an article that coincides with outside source that says this Jesus, whom we all agree, died on a cross. He was the carpenter's son of Joseph and Mary. And he was a teacher, a performer, and performer of wondrous acts in the area of Judea and Galilee. And our, our critical friends can say, yeah, we agree with that too. And say so he died at the order of Pontius Pilate. We agree with that. His disciples grew in the face of extreme persecution, those who claimed to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. We can agree with that. 
So what are we going to do with all that evidence? That was the question we left at the end of the lesson this morning. Where does it all point? And as I said this morning, I believe there is only one reasonable conclusion that we can draw from all of this. And that is the belief of those first century eyewitnesses who said we saw Jesus rise from the dead. The belief of the church that listened to their testimony and gave their lives for it is the belief that we can have as well today. Will we though? Will we believe as these early disciples did? I want to remind you that what we've looked at and the way we've approached this this afternoon, I'm not asking you to believe because of what I say. And I'm not asking you to believe what any of these outside sources say. I'm not asking you to believe what the church here is teaching. And in all honesty, I'm not even really asking you to believe what the Bible says. Those aren't the things I'm asking you. What I'm asking you to do is look at all the evidence that God has given us. Look at all the evidence that He has provided to show us what He has done and come to a conclusion based upon that evidence. The only conclusion that we can see from Scriptures. The only conclusion that fits with the historical accounts that are recorded for us is that Jesus was the Son of God. And that believing in Him, as John details to us at the end of his Gospel, the purpose of his Gospel is that we can believe in Him and have life in His name. Now, we haven't talked a great deal about how we do that this afternoon. We've spent a lot of time outside of Scripture. But as we get ready to close in, I invite you to turn your Bibles over to Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, you have a group of men who were just like so many critical of the Gospel today. They believed Jesus existed. Hands down, he was a thorn in their side. Didn't like the things he was saying. They believed. They believed that he died on the cross. And when they saw the, the remarkable accounts of these eyewitnesses who said, we saw him alive. And they saw the way that it transformed their lives, specifically in Acts chapter 2, the way that it transformed them through the role of the Holy Spirit. It led them to ask this question. Verse 37, having their hearts pierced, they said, what do we do? Maybe when we look at the evidence with a friend, maybe we're looking at the evidence right now for the first time in this manner, and it leads us to ask the same question to ourselves. What do we do? The good news of God's Word is the answer to them is the same answer we have today. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. God has been calling His created people to look at the evidence and come to a conclusion upon who His Son is. Who is Jesus of Nazareth to you? What will you do with the evidence of Him? If we can assist you this afternoon in, in following that evidence to a conclusion that says, I need to submit to Him as the Lord, we would be desiring, desiring to do that. If you've already made that decision, but a life in the world has caused you to turn your eyes away from Him, but you feel the need of repentance and desire to come back to Him, it is our desire to help you with that as well. Whatever we can do, please let it be known now as we stand and sing.